0: Good morning, everybody. As you may be able to tell, I am not Pastor Dan. Um, if this is your first time here, I'm not Pastor Dan. So, I, my name is Anthony Fulmer. Um, I am actually an elder here at the church, and then you can often also see me lurking in the sound booth, hiding from everybody. So, um, yeah. So, Pastor Dan asked me to teach. He's out of town this week. I was happy to do it, obviously. But um, last week we were treated to Awkward Alley, and this week we will be treated to Awkward Anthony. So I hope you guys are buckled up and ready for that. Okay, perfect. I should have put my notes together better from last service. Okay, so we are going to be in John 15 today. And we are going to be looking at the concept that Christ teaches in the first 11 verses of John 15 of abiding in Christ. And what that means, what that looks like, what it doesn't look like, and kind of the implications of that. So we're going to jump into that. But before we do, there is one additional topic that I wanted to tackle in regards to these verses. And that is, does John 15 teach that Christians can lose their salvation? Okay, this is one of the verses that those who hold to that particular theological viewpoint will use to support it. And so the first thing before we jump too deeply into it is I want to tackle that first. And I think a lot of the push for that interpretation comes from two words in verse 2. Where Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And so, the idea being, doesn't the fact that Jesus says that these branches are in him mean that the people he's talking about in these verses are believers? And I'm very confident in saying to you right now that the answer to that question is no, but I will make my case. So, we'll study the context, we'll look at some verses. I will try not to spend too much time on it because I want to get to the actual text, but let us read this section together, and I will pray, and then we'll jump right into it, okay guys? All right, John 15 verses 1 through 11. "I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit you are already clean because of the word which i have spoken to you abide in me and i in you and as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me i'm the vine you are the branches He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. That you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples as the father loved me I also have loved you abide in my love if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full let's pray father We just come before you, Lord, humbly asking for you to work mightily through this time in this place, Lord. We are gathered together as your people, hoping to spend some time, Lord, worshiping you in truth. Lord, this is not a ritual to us, Lord, but this is a sincere expression of our love for you, Lord. And we thank you for just the opportunity to be here together, Lord. We thank you for your word that you speak to us every day, Lord, and we just pray That we prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us, Lord. And just pray that um, our time together will be fruitful today. So as we study your word, Lord, give us ears to hear what you have for us, Lord. Help us to discern the truth of what you have in this text. And Lord, we just thank you and we praise you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 All right. So, jumping right in. Does John 15 teach? The Christians can lose their salvation. I know. I'm just going to be upfront and say no. That is not the case. But in the spirit of making my case, let's look first at the context of John 15, because as every Bible theologian, scholar, teacher, whatever, will tell you, a verse means what it means in the context of the verses around it. A chapter means what it means in the context of the chapters around it. And we can't divorce those things from one another when we're looking to understand something that may be worded in a way that makes us question, right? Because oftentimes, some additional context of why Jesus says something the way that he does can be helpful, help us understand a little more deeply uh, what he's talking about. For example, in John 8:12, Jesus teaches, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life, right? Very well-known verse. If you've been a Christian for a long time, I'm sure you've heard it. But that verse, that teaching, it's kind of helpful to understand some additional context of it. That when Jesus was teaching that, he was in the court of women in the temple. And in the court of women, there are these four enormous lamps, these candelabras, 75 feet high. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a ritual in which the Jews would light those candelabras. It was called the illumination of the temple. So they would light these lamps and it would send an enormous amount of light out from the temple into the entire city of Jerusalem every night during this festival. And the light itself was meant to represent the pillar of fire that the Israelites followed in the wilderness with God actually leading them. So here Jesus is, standing before these lamps, they obviously weren't lit at the time, but he's standing next to these lamps and he's giving this teaching, right, so that's interesting. This is obviously why he chose those words uh, in that particular instance. So what is the context of chapter 15 then? Okay, So starting in chapter 13, we have the disciples meeting in the upper room. It is the night, the last night that he's going to be with his disciples. This is the night he's betrayed, captured, and then obviously he dies tomorrow. He's crucified tomorrow. So he's teaching his disciples the last things he's going to teach them before his crucifixion. But there's also another dynamic at play as well. There's something else on his mind. So let's look at chapter 13 to see what I'm talking about. So first... Almost immediately in chapter 13, verse 2, it says, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then again it says in verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. And again, in verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And again, in verse 27, it says, now after the piece of bread, the piece of bread that Jesus offered Judas, Satan entered him, speaking of Judas. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Okay. And in chapter 14, They finish in the upper room. Now they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem at night on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will pray and the disciples will nap. So so this is the context into which we're looking in chapter 15. Jesus' death is not the thing he's focused on at this moment. That comes in the garden right now he's focusing on the betrayal of Judas that's what's in the front of his mind so now with that in mind let's go back to chapter 15 and look at verse 2 again every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit so I think it is clear from the context of these verses that what Jesus has in mind here He's referring to two kinds of branches, the branches of his true believers, true disciples, and branches, Judas branches, right? Branches like Judas, who are in him superficially, right? Obviously, Judas was known as one of the 12. He has a huge, you know, he spent a ton of time with Jesus. He spent a ton of time with all these guys. They've been together for years, ministering together. He's been there for the miracles, all that stuff. So he is in Christ in a superficial sense, in an outward sense to the world, but there is no inner life there. So, but we still have to contend with Jesus' words. So maybe the fact that it says in me, you still have that question. Does in Christ mean salvation the way that Jesus used it in this verse? Because when Paul says in me, in the New Testament books, that is absolutely the context of it. But in this case, that is not the way that Jesus means it, right? He, the Gospels are filled with stories of people who associated themselves with Jesus, but were not believers, right? Matthew 7 speaks very clearly of these people. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And then at the end of that teaching, he says and I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness these were people never known by him okay never so that is I, I did go quite a bit more into it we don't want to be here till 2 p.m. so I will cut it there and get into the text itself but I hope to sometime in the future um, spend a little more time talking about this topic because I think it's, it's actually pretty important, right? Because, especially in this section of Scripture, when Jesus says to abide in him, our understanding of what our relationship with Jesus looks like is going to affect how we interpret that, how we obey him, how we are able to rest in him. And if we're worried that we're like one slip up away from getting the boot or something along those lines, that's going to harm us, I think, in the long term. I come from a very legalistic background, a very works-based background. My religion of reference was works-based, was legalism. And so for me, I know having that, even though I was eventually saved and I became a believer, it took a lot of years for me to kind of get over that part of me. I was always like, I'm not doing good enough. Like God's probably pretty ticked at me right now. And, and that relationship that we had, like, oh, man, I'm, I'm still struggling with this. Like, I'm totally blowing it. Like, I'm, I'm probably not even really saved, you know. Like, these were the things that were going through in my mind. And it's only that over time as God has sort of deepened my understanding of his grace, his mercy, his incredible gift on our behalf, that I've been able to rest more fully in that salvation instead of questioning it all the time or worried that I'm not really saved. So let's jump into the text, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So, the first thing I want to point out in these verses is that Jesus identifies himself as the true vine. And so, the reason for that, or one of the reasons at least, is that Israel considered themselves the vine of God. And for actually good reason, because throughout the Old Testament, God himself called them that multiple times. So we're going to just quickly look at Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9. Uh, This entire psalm covers this theme, and there's many more. Uh, Isaiah 5, all that. So um, let me look at this real quick. Psalm 80, 8 through 9. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and filled, and it filled the land. So, the idea here and the idea that Israel had about themselves is that God is this root in the ground of goodness and blessing and everything. And that root only goes up into the vine, which is Israel. So, if you wanted to experience God's blessing or his goodness, or any sort of relationship with him, you had to be grafted into the vine, which was Israel. So this idea was so ingrained in Jewish culture that if when Herod rebuilt the temple, this enormous temple, there was on the front of it, this huge golden vine on there meant to represent Israel. But now we have Jesus here in this moment saying that he is the true vine, he is the true vine, not Israel, right? So this obviously becomes pretty important, too, as we um, move on into the church age. So verses 2 and 3. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So in verse 1, right, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser, right? So you have these two characters Christ the vine, the Father is the vine dresser. And now here in verse 2, we see God's role in this entire operation, right? God's doing two things. Basically, his job in this analogy is to, as the vine dresser, is to maintain the health of the vines, right? First, he takes those vines that are bearing no fruit and are simply sucking up energy and nutrients from the fruitful branches, and he gets rid of them. Next, he takes the branches that are fruitful and he directs their productivity by pruning them so that they may bear more fruit, right? Anyone, I don't know if anybody gardens in here, but if you do garden, this is something that we actually, all of us have to do to maintain a healthy garden. So this is a pretty clear, picture. But I think it's very important to note here that every Christian bears good fruit. Every single one. Sometimes not a lot of fruit. Sometimes a lot of fruit. But every Christian will bear some fruit and it will be good fruit. Okay? So when Jesus says that every branch that bears no fruit is taken away, he is not talking about Christians, because there is no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. Okay. Let's look at a few verses for this as well. Ephesians 2 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay? This is what we we're prepared for by God. Matthew 7:16, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Over and over in the Gospels, the concept of knowing something by their fruit is repeated over and over again. Matthew twelve thirty-three. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. So every Christian bears fruit. That's how we know that they're Christians, right? All we're talking about is varying degrees. Some maybe a lot, some maybe not a lot, but always some. And so let's think about what would have to be true for somebody to say you can be a Christian and have no fruit. Let's look at it in the context of the fruit of the Spirit. You would be saying that you can have a Christian that has no love, no joy, no peace, no patience, no kindness, no goodness, no faithfulness, no gentleness, no self-control, which I think is silly on the face of it. So when Christ talks about the Father gathering the fruitless branches to take them away, he is not talking about Christians. He's speaking of those who have attached themselves to Christ in some way, superficially, but there is no inner life. The branch is dead. It's getting, it's not bearing any fruit. However, the second part of the verse, he is talking about you when he says that every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This is probably, I don't know. It's not everybody's favorite teaching to be pruned, right? Because what do we know about pruning? Oftentimes, What pruning entails is a cleansing or trials. Nobody likes to be uncomfortable. Nobody likes to be hurt. Nobody likes to go through those things, right? But we get things that build up in our lives. Maybe it's a sin that we've sort of excused and kind of brushed to the corner of our lives. Or maybe it's even something as seemingly innocuous as just having, uh, you know, you're going through a lot. People, things happen to people all the time. You know, they're... AC blows in their car, they got to pay $5,000 because their engine failed, or they just got a terrible health diagnosis, or somebody they love passed away or is really sick, right? There's things that happen in our lives that crop up, divert our attention away from God, steal our joy, and make us live in a way that um, we stop bearing fruit or our fruit is not... um, we're not being as fruitful as we could be so God prunes us to make us fruitful right uh, one of the first things that when I was a new Christian one of the first verses I really grabbed a hold of was <clears throat> James chapter 1 consider it pure joy my brothers when you face trials of many kinds for it is by the testing of your faith that you develop perseverance. And that seems so counterintuitive to me because who in the world should be happy when they're going through bad things, right? When they're being persecuted or whether somebody hates them for something that they've said or something they've done in the name of Christ, right? But God uses these things to really just kick the junk out of our lives, help us focus on those things that are truly important in an eternal sense and we benefit all the more for it. So, in verse 3 here, uh, Jesus says, You are already clean because of the word I, which I have spoken to you. So, it is the word primarily that makes us grow. Okay? This is literally God's word to us that he wrote for us. This is the main way in which he communicates with us. And so, it's obvious that it's going to take a central role in us growing in our lives as Christians. Consider all the hard teachings that surprised the disciples when Jesus gave them. For example, uh, you know, forgive your brother 70 times 7 times. And they were like, wait, I was prepared to do 7. 70 times 7 seems way too much. Or in John 6, when Jesus said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part in me. And what did it say? Many disciples left that day and followed him no more. So God's word is really a refining fire for us one way or the other. It either proves that our faith is genuine or it proves that it's not one way or the other. Now sometimes when God is pruning you, you don't require a trial. Sometimes you're lucky enough that you can simply read his word and then hold your life up against it and say to yourself, something's not adding up here. There's something here that doesn't add up. And that alone, that conviction, he will use to prune your life. So let's move on to verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I think this is a, a really kind of beautiful picture of our... Relationship with Jesus, right? Um, God gives a lot of uh, analogies discussing our relationship with Him, right? For example, God is called the shepherd and we are called the sheep, right? And that gives us a slice of the picture of our relationship. And it's actually a pretty nice image of Him, right? As a protector, right? He protects and keeps the sheep safe. Uh, If any of us wander off, he comes and he gets us and he brings us back to the fold. It's very nice. But while the shepherd probably feels some fondness for the sheep, that relationship is a little impersonal, I think we'd all agree. And so, again, in Ephesians 2, we have another um, illustration discussing our relationship with God, and that is we are called members of God's family. And I think that's obviously a much more... Personal and intimate view of our relationship with God. But does anybody in here have families? Raise of hands. Okay, just a couple of you. Good, good, good. Um, as any of us with families know, uh, and if you don't know, get with somebody who has a family, they'll tell you. There are strains, there are divisions, even outright hostility in some families. Like, from an earthly sense, our families are not perfect in any way. And so that kind of sullies the image that Christ is painting here. But let's look at this image here in verse 4, the image of the vine and branch, which I think is even more personal than either of those other two. Right? The branch does not produce the fruit. The vine does. All the branch does is bear it, which means if the vine's dead, the branch cannot continue to produce fruit. Everything the branch gets that it needs to survive, it gets from the vine. Think about how of intimate of a description that is. And also notice that Christ says, essentially, this is a two-way street. We abide in him. He abides in us. It, It flows both ways. Now, part of the reason, obviously, other than just this nice, intimate description, part of the reason he chose this particular illustration is because what's about to happen to him. He's had an extraordinarily close, intimate relationship with these disciples for all these years. And he knows he's being betrayed right now. And he knows he'll be dead tomorrow. So he's trying to help prepare these men for this breaking of this physical connection with him. Letting them know that even though he's no longer going to be physically with them, their relationship is going to continue to be intimate and close. Okay, so let's kind of discuss what does it mean to abide in Christ, right? Um, you know, I was I've had an image of it sort of being like you're sitting in your backyard with one of those tanning mirrors, right? It's like blasting you in the face until you're baked like a cookie. So like that's like an image that I had of it. But uh, in its most basic, abide means to remain with him that's literally what abide means is to remain it means to trust in and receive all that god has for us in christ okay it is to rest in him to have fellowship with him and to share in his life share in his joy and share in his love these are the things that god is calling us to right so let's look at a couple of verses that sort of add dimensions to this idea. First John 6:35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now obviously, the if you've been a Christian for more than one meal, you understand that the hunger and thirst he's speaking of here is not physical, right? He's talking about a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst. Let's dive a little deeper into what that means, right? Every one of us is here because on some level, at some point in our life, we examined it and we said, there has to be something more than what we're experiencing on this very earthly material level. There has to be something greater than this. And so abiding in Christ means ultimately that that core of longing, that little voice that sat there in the back of your head until you met Jesus is completely fulfilled. There's no more wondering how do I fit into this world. What am I even here for? All of that Christ takes, and he, the answer is found in Him and Him alone. So that is a portion of it. We're going to look at the rest of these verses and add to that understanding. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Because He says abide ten times in these verses. So we're going to continue looking through it. So verse five: I am the vine; you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So he's basically reiterating what he's already said. He reiterates that he's the vine. When you see something repeated over and over in the Bible, it's probably because it needed to be, right? God doesn't waste words that he doesn't need to. So the disciples, all being Jews, were very used to thinking of Israel as the vine from where God's blessings flowed. And He's trying to teach them that it's actually their connection to him that brings them into relationship with God, not Israel. This is going to obviously become a lot more critical for them to understand after he's dead, once the church age has come and the Gentiles start to become believers. We studied Galatians not too long ago. And what was the huge problem happening in Galatians with the Galatian church? The Gentiles were being saved and then these Judaizers showed up and were like, guys, this is pretty cool that you're like all about Jesus and stuff, but Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. So if you're going to want to come into this relationship with God, Jesus is cool and all, but you need to become a Jew first and then you can have access to our Messiah. Then you can have access to our God. So that was literally the problem that they were having 20, 30 years later in the church after it started. So based on this, the second thing I wanna point out is that based on this, again, our fruitfulness is completely dependent upon Christ. Apart from abiding in him, we can do nothing that's gonna be eternally valuable, okay? Um, I, I think about that quite a bit when I'm asked to teach because that is especially true when you're up here, right? Um, I am not a chef. I am not creating something for you to consume. I am a waiter. God creates it. God is the chef, and he hands it to me. If I'm doing my job right, I get it to the table without spilling it on you. That's, That's it. That's my role. So if I am up here attempting to wow you with my eloquence, or my sweet jokes, or whatever, and I'm not depending fully on God to put some power into these words that they might actually be of eternal value for you, then I'm wasting your time. You are just sitting in here for an hour, we're all going to hug, go home, nothing changes. So, let's look at Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. That is the core, I think, of our motivations as believers, right? Because there's a lot of activity that is possible. A lot of things get done in the church that have nothing to do with God's leading in our lives, right? Hopefully, not, you know, uh, this church, probably in, in certain instances, right, where none of us are perfect. But a lot of activities apart is possible apart from God but nothing of value will come from any of that apart from it being driven by him which is why we're so careful to always look for his leading when we do things so let me give you a little encouragement in that vein though okay this is courtesy of uh, Charles Spurgeon without me ye can do nothing if this be true of apostles how much more of opposers If his friends can do nothing without him, I am sure his foes can do nothing against him. And that is so absolutely true. Um, If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. All right, let's move on to verse 6 now. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So... Um, there is some question in verse 2 when it says that the vine dresser takes away the branches. There is some question about how that word should be translated. The word is arrow, which means it could mean take away, it could also mean lift up. And there are a group of people who believe that the better translation is to lift up. The idea being that God is the vine dresser, sees this unfruitful branch, and he lifts it up to try to bring it closer to the sun and help it have the best chance as possible of being fruitful. But I would say that this verse here in verse 6 really provides the context that we should understand verse 2 with. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them up and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. I do believe that takes away is the better translation of that word for that reason. And again. I will beat this horse until it is way past being dead. But please understand that the branches in this verse were never true branches. He is not talking about believers here, true believers. Okay, And ultimately, to believe otherwise, if you think that your salvation in some way depends on your faithfulness and not Christ's, all it is gonna bring you is heartache and stress anxiety sleepless nights because guess what we're not good enough, (laughs) right so the whole point of grace is we can't do it we if we could do it we'd have done it ourselves we can't do it we can't do it on our own so because we can't do it on our own we can't depend on ourselves to maintain it so let's look at verse 7 if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. I tried it. This is not a recipe for getting a Lambo. I'm sorry. Um, the statement here is just simply one of cause and effect. Okay? So the idea being, if you abide in Christ and his words abide in you, it means that you will be conforming yourself into his image. Right? That's part of what happens as his words come in us. They, they become a part of who we are. We start looking more like him, acting more like him. Therefore, when we pray, we're going to naturally be praying in a way that is led by God because those desires that we have are also becoming conformed to Christ. And so those things that God already wants to bless us with are the things that we are now naturally praying for to receive. And the best part is, That those things that God wants you to to be blessed with are much more valuable than that Lambo. I hear. It definitely is. Yeah. So the part of the incredible kindness of God is that He doesn't deprive us of anything. Everything that He turns us away from or warns us against is always for our benefit. We. He's not doing it for His benefit. It's for our benefit, right? He tells us, stay away. He's warning us for our own good. We always gain much more from any of those things than he does. So uh, the most, I guess, straightforward way to look at Christ's word abiding in us is to talk about obviously reading the word, having that to be a central part of your relationship, being in it all the time. But also I would say memorizing scripture. I am not the best memorizer, haven't been. um, But... So I will encourage you guys and myself to make it more of a priority. So I'm going to give you guys seven reasons uh, very quickly, (laughs) quickly seven reasons why that is the case, okay? So reason number one, memorizing scripture fills your mind with scripture so that you are able to meditate on God's word when a Bible is not handy. So if you're at work, you're driving in traffic or whatever, you don't have a Bible handy, having scripture memorized gives you those moments to be able to meditate on those things that are in it. Because the more you meditate, the better you understand, right? Number two, memorizing scripture strengthens my faith. What does Romans ten seventeen say? Strength, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, right? My faith is strengthened when I have his word implanted deeply in me. Three, three. Memorizing scripture conforms my mind to Christ's. And so therefore, just the way that I interact in the world becomes more like Christ as well. I, become, I have much more of a biblical worldview and the way that I treat people, the way that I interact with others is much more in line with Christ. Okay, Four, memorizing scripture gives me ready ammunition to defeat sin when it appears. Um, things happen in people's lives, they go through things, there's always like good advice, but nothing is more powerful than God's word in a situation. And if you're caught unaware by something, and you're not ready to deal with it, or you don't have any promise from God, or any, you, you lack that, you're going to get your knees taken out by something like that when it comes up. Five, memorizing scripture provides me with a strong basis to judge truth and error and it protects my mind it is hard to be deceived by somebody's bad teaching or an errant theology if you have a very good basis on what God's word says yourself so just that that concept of being able to judge truth from error accurately because it's just such a big part of your life Okay, number six Memorizing scripture gives me something useful to offer somebody to minister in a time of need. Again, advice is helpful in some cases, but nothing beats being able to speak a word of comfort, a promise of God, or just something to meet somebody where they are in that moment directly from Christ, right? The word of God does not return void. Every time we use it properly, God blesses it with his strength. And that's going to mean a whole lot more to somebody in a tough situation than even the best advice you could give them outside of it. And then lastly, number seven, memorizing scripture helps me commune with God. Right? This is God's word. He wrote it for us, for us to be able to have this relationship with him. This is the primary way in which he speaks to us. So we have to have a good basis for him to actually talk. If we don't have any words of Christ in here, how is he going to talk to us, right? He very rarely sends an angel to do the work for him. So we can't count on that in our lives. So, but I will also, just so we don't go too far down on this side of things, um, Christ's Christ's word abiding in us does not just mean to memorize scripture at all. Because as we see many times throughout the Gospels, the Jews knew an immense amount of Old Testament scripture, and they quoted it quite often. And yet, what did Jesus say about them? John 5.38, he says, But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. So Christ said, hey, listen, knowing all the scripture, memorizing all the scripture in the world is not going to help you if you miss the point of it, right? If it's not in you and there's an inner life there. So let's move on to verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So I love this. This is like um, a perspective verse right? Because we're talking about abiding in Christ. What does that mean? Our relationship with him and everything like that. The fruit that we're bearing because of it and everything like that. And then Jesus brings it back around to the main point. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. As much as bearing fruit benefits us, as much as it benefits your brothers and sisters who you use that fruit to bless in a church body, ultimately, The best part of being fruitful is that we glorify God. These things ultimately are not about us. They're about bringing glory to God. We honor God in that his work in our lives as the vine dresser causes us to bear fruit, which has an outward expression that causes people to see that and go, wow, their God is great. Look at that. That's amazing. These people are awesome because of the work that their God does in their lives. Now, a lot of times, this work is most easily seen by people who were, like became believers as adults, right? Because it's like I was a terrible scumbag, and then Jesus saved me, and now I'm not, right? Like, um, I didn't become a Christian until I was 20. Well, 19, really. But um, I would go talk to people that I went to high school with, and they're like, I was a terrible person in high school, right? I was, yeah, not kind, very selfish, self-centered, like just treated people like garbage, whatever. But, you know, it's actually really interesting to have these conversations with people now uh, that I've been a believer for a while, right? Meeting people that I used to know in high school. Now, some of them obviously just chalk it up to maturity, which some of it definitely would have been regardless of me being a Christian, but, you know, I do think that, that that is the best way to see the before and after picture you've had time to be just a real dirtbag. God saves you and you're like, okay, all right, here we go. So, um, so in this verse, okay, the fruit being talked about in verse eight, there's two main kinds. One is the fruit of attitude, right? The fruit of the spirit, for example, as I mentioned, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are all things that deal with the inner life that a believer has. And because these things exist inside of believers, the natural output is action, fruitful action, that follows along from the inner attitude that we have. Notice that the fruit of the Spirit is not helping an old lady haul in their groceries, or mowing your neighbor's lawn, or donating money at a charity event. The Spirit is primarily concerned with our inner life right because the inner life is what determines ultimately the outward expression right what does the Bible say Uh, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks right that's one way in which that's true but obviously we know that it follows uh, in every other arena of life as well and one thing that kinda struck me as I'm going through these verses is just it's incredibly kind of God it's really a sign of how amazing his love for us is and his grace for us that these things which glorify him are also the things which benefit us the most right that's a pretty amazing thing about God the way that he always works things out to our maximum benefit in his glory so so incredible alright verses 9 and 10 as the Father loved me I also have loved you Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. right? So and here Christ is just reiterating essentially the truth that he gave in verse 2. He's saying essentially the same thing to us as he did there. And he also offers himself up as our example, right? Just as I have kept my Father's commands, right? If you keep my Father's commands, you will abide in my love. And then lastly, um, one of the things that I love about this, you can always tell that it was the same person who wrote 1 John as this gospel. Because these two verses especially obviously had a huge impact on John, because so much of 1 John follows the same concept, the same format here. And so, let's quickly look at verse 11, our final verse today. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Again, just another, just, I don't know, man, guys, like, it's pretty baffling to think about just how kind God is on our behalf. Christ is asking us to abide in Him because of all the amazing benefits that it provides us personally that it is the best way to glorify the Lord. And then here he says, he finishes out this section by saying, I, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He's not, God's not interested in browbeating us into compliance. Right? He knows that obedience through fear is not really obedience. right? Obedience has to come from a willing heart. And so God's not also primarily interested in our outward actions our hearts because he knows that's where everything ultimately comes from Oops, sorry he knows that when our hearts are right our actions are gonna follow so Christ isn't warning his disciples out of a desire to scare them straight he is just pleading with them and showing them the amazing gift that God has for us that he desperately wants to give all of us and show them what blessings come from living as God intended us to. So we'll just, Greg, you want to come on up? We'll close our time together. Just one last little piece about this verse that I love, that I wanted to point out to you, is that the word full here, the last word that you joy may be full, the word also means complete, right? And I love the metaphor that the, that the Greek word draws. It is the idea of a vessel like a clay pot or cistern or whatever that holds liquid, and that this cistern is filled completely to the brim so that not a single drop can be added to it. It is completely full from bottom to top. Can you imagine what that would mean in our lives if our joy was full? Everything in our lives replaced by the joy of Christ filling us to the brim where there was no room for anything else. So I will just close with a... few words from theologian Adam Clark and then we'll pray and then we'll worship God by way of song. Adam Clark says, the religion of Christ expels all misery from the hearts of those who receive it in its fullness. It was to drive wretchedness out of the world that Jesus came into it. And I hope that that's something that we will hold on to and remember in our daily lives. Let's pray. Father, we are just so grateful just for your grace what an amazing work you've done in each of our lives, Lord that you would condescend to saving us, Lord that though we are sinners, Lord we are sinful men and women you choose to make your residence in us, Lord and we just thank you for what an incredible promise that is What an incredible amount of meaning that is, Lord. And so we just look to you, Lord, as we seek to just understand your word in a more deep and personal way, Lord. Help this to be a time where we're able to really grab hold of things of real significant eternal value, Lord, and put them in our lives. Lord, we just want to decrease. We want less of ourselves, Lord, and more of you in our lives. Lord, help us. Help us to take hold of your joy, Lord. Help us to fill our hearts with it until we can bear no more, Lord. And so we thank you for just your loving kindness towards us, Lord, how you do everything for our benefit, for our favor, Lord. Thank you. Help us to never take you for granted. Help us to never look upon your grace as something not remarkable, Lord. And just please bless us as we go out together as your people. And we just ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.